Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Loving Liberty program. It's a Tuesday, and I have my friend Eric Peters with me today. Eric, welcome. Glad to be back. Has a whole nother week gone by. Can you believe it? It's uh, Time has no. sped up. <laughs> Tempest Fugit, like my article about the now antique modern Mustang. Yeah, and, and by the way, thanks for writing that, uh, that article, because I mm-hmm. just realized when I have to go register my Mustang next month, I could actually ask for antique plates. Yeah, boy, that was a reality check for me. I, I found myself in traffic, and I just glanced in front of me, and there was what to me seemed to be a, a late model Mustang, at least from my point of view, because I test drove those things when they were new. And I looked at the license plate, and it was an antique tag. And then I realized, oh, my God, it's 1994. And 1994 was 26 years ago. And sure enough, it's an antique now. Amazing. Well, and I also yep. have to congratulate you. you. You apparently have survived the latest heat wave apocalypse. Yeah, oh boy. You know, this is a subject of constant conversation, uh, myself and my amigos, and you and I have talked about it too, the hysterization of weather. It's mid-late July, and it's 95 degrees, and gee, is, is that, that, as far as I can tell, that's fairly normal for summer, but you'd think that the sun had just increased in luminosity by 50%, and we all had better put on our asbestos suits, and God help us, the world is going to end next week. But but the good news is there are people out there with a fix for us, and all it's going to require is more of our money and giving greater yeah. control of our lives to bureaucrats. It's simple. Sure. Sure. We might as well just revert to living like uh, Polynesian cannibals and uh, living in fear that the uh, uh, the solar eclipse means the end of the world. And we better do what the medicine man says as he shakes his stick at us and fall prostrate before the chief. That's essentially what they're asking us to do. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that there are skeptics like yourself who remain. You give me hope. You give me courage. Well, it doesn't take that much. I think all you really need is the ability to remember more than a goldfish does, first of all, uh, and, and an IQ that's a little bit higher than a goldfish's. And if you've got those two things, I think you can, you can get by. You know, you had a, a great article last week commemorating the moon landing, which I guess mm-hmm. the 50th anniversary came and went this last Saturday. Uh, Fifty years ago, for, for those who haven't had a chance to read your mm-hmm. article yet on ericpetersautos.com, uh, give me your thoughts on, on what that achievement marked. You know, it's, I, I, I am nostalgic and saddened by the whole thing. Did you see the, the, the great movie Interstellar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the side plots was, and this is you know, in the relatively near future the movie takes place, people have come to believe that the moon landings never happened, that they were hoaxed by NASA. You know, and that we're all supposed to look down, not up. And that's what's happened now. Uh, you know, the Apollo was canceled uh, two-thirds of the way through the program. There were supposed to have been, I think, 17, if not 18 missions. The last one was in 1972. And this tremendous achievement, now granted it was a government-funded achievement, but this tremendous achievement, if you think about what they did in the mid-late 1960s with the technology that they had at that time, and we've forgotten it, and half a century has passed, and we've regressed. The best that we can do now is to, is to get a guy into low Earth orbit uh, into the space station. It's astonishing and it's sad that, that everything that could have been was stillborn, and it was stillborn because of resentment toward the achievement that Apollo embodied. 
I was surprised at how quickly some people moved to politicize it and say, well, you know, 50 years ago, that was strictly a white man's world, and that's, that's only a white man's achievement. And I thought, wow, that's, that's an interesting lens through which to view history. Yeah, one of the, the hooks that I put into my article uh, is a ditty uh, that was written at the time, back during the Apollo program, by a guy named Gil Scott Heron. And the title of this thing was called Whitey on the Moon. And it was just a, essentially a short little monologue uh, about how awful it was that resources were being put toward Apollo and putting white Whitey on the moon um, while uh, people in the ghetto weren't getting their EBT and welfare checks. And that essentially is what killed Apollo. Uh, this resentment about money being spent on uh, the space program rather than on entitlements and uh, creating a dependent class of of people uh, awaiting their government checks. Now, I love in, in your commentary, you actually reference Ayn Rand and, uh, yeah. and how she represented a totally different mindset than the one from, uh, you know, Whitey on the Moon. Yeah, this wasn't a racial thing at all. She had a she delivered a great speech. I think it was to the graduating class at West Point called Apollo and Dionysus, referencing the two uh, characters from, from Greek and Roman mythology, uh, with the uh, Apollo ideal uh, venerating, respecting, admiring, and striving for progress and achievement, which the Apollo missions not only were named for but represented, as opposed to just this indolent looking down. Uh, uh, at, at the ground and contemplating our navels and our toes and, and not trying to go for the impossible things uh, and, and, and to do the hard things, as, as Kennedy himself said uh, when, he, when he gave the impetus for the, uh, for the space program. And, and that's what's happened. You know, we've, we've lost the sense of epicness and grandeur that, that the space program represented. There's nothing analogous today, and it's a really, it's a very, very tragic thing. If Apollo had continued, I believe we would have had uh, probably perpetually occupied bases on the moon by now and probably would have landed men on Mars, and Lord knows what other uh, achievements would have, have benefited the entire society as a result of those things. Okay, so help me understand, at what point did our, our focus become downward? Because I've, I've been alive for most of this, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure I could pinpoint when exactly our, 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 our gaze shifted. Well, it happened. You know, I wasn't old enough to have witnessed it personally, but I have read about it, and I've gone back and I watched some of the uh, the videos of, of what occurred back then. And there were there were protests that began to occur, just like now. This shaming, shame, shame, shame of uh, devoting time, energy, and resources to putting people into space and onto the moon when there are all these pressing needs uh, here on Earth. Uh, you know, we have to take care of the underclass. We have to provide the great society programs. All of that. Those things are more important than uh, putting a couple of "quote unquote" whiteies on the moon. Interesting. Now, Even though they, you know, the, the, the idea that the, you know, the idea that this is now cast in racial terms is also despicable because none of those, none of the people involved in the space program were, were looking at it from that point of view. This was they were acting on behalf of our common humanity. Had nothing to do with anything racial. Right. Well, Neil Armstrong, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for Whitey. Right. No, that's not what he said. That's right. Right. He said one small leap for a man, being very humble about himself, even though he had every reason to not be humble. And, and you know, just pointing out that this was something that he was acting as our representative on behalf of all of us, the whole planet. You know, not, not just to, to, to portray this as some kind of a cross-burning clan event is just it, it makes my jaw drop to the floor. 
well, it's it's political opportunism at its worst. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to ask you, though, is, is there anything happening, uh, maybe not within the government sector, but within the private sector pertaining to space travel that gives you hope that some people are looking upward again? Uh, to some degree. Um, Branson's program is pretty interesting. Uh, he's, he's got this, uh, I forgot, do you remember what the name of it is, his, his vehicle that he's using to, uh, to, I think it takes off like an airplane and it, it, it can achieve orbit. I want to say galactic um, something, talk- but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it is galactic something. That I, you know, that interests me. But still, there's nothing and, and nothing that is analogous to nearly the eight million pounds of thrust that that Saturn V generated and was able to leave Earth orbit. That's the key thing. Uh, there are plenty of rockets now, but these rockets, all they can do is is get somebody just barely out of the atmosphere into low Earth orbit. It is a staggering achievement that they were able to uh, to get people out of the orbit, out of the gravitational pull of the Earth, and land people on another uh, celestial body. It's, it's, it's an achievement that words really are inadequate to express. Now, I always find it uh, a little bit curious that there are people who maintain, oh, no, no, Stanley Kubrick filmed and helped fake yeah. those moon landings. How do you answer those skeptics who maintain, we never actually went there? Well, there's something called the principle of parsimony in logic, which I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, and it is simply which is which explanation uh, is the most likely given the facts at hand, and we have voluminous facts at hand to support the fact that indeed men did land on the moon, and the idea that the probably tens of thousands of people who were directly involved with the moon landing itself uh, somehow were complicit in a conspiracy or were hoodwinked, and these are all very very intelligent people, by the way. Uh, is risable. It's ludicrous. And at the same time, we were in the height of the Cold War. We were in a race with the Soviets to get to the moon, and the Soviets were keeping track of the telemetry and the evidence, which if if it had been a fraud, they would have been more than happy to display. And today, now, uh, thanks to uh, the Mars, not Mars, the moon, what's the name of it, the surveyor, I think, that they've they've sent up there to to map the moon, you can actually see the, the Apollo landing sites. You can see the tracks left by uh, the lunar rover. You can see the remains of the lower portion of, of the lunar modules that are on the surface of the moon. It's ludicrous and ridiculous to say that the moon landings were hoaxed. All right, we've got to pause here because we've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. We have a lot of other fun stuff to talk about. We'll continue right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Today I'm talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. And Eric, uh, one of the things I love, in addition to your commentaries on freedom, government, uh, how to live as a free person in an increasingly unfree world, you also talk a lot about cars. I think that's, you know, most people would know you. Oh, yeah, you're the the car rider. You had a great write-up on the Dodge Charger. And Mm -hmm. this is a car that is, is kind of a dying breed. Tell me why that is. Well, it's not just a dying breed. It's the last of the Mohicans. It's truly the last of its kind. And its kind is a big rear-wheel drive car 
that comes standard with a big V6 and is available with a big V8 that costs less than $30,000 to start. There's nothing else like it on the road. And it's the kind of car that Americans used to typically drive, but which no longer do. This is the last such car. And if you want to experience what Americans used to experience, it's the car to go for a test drive in. All right. Now, you know, I look back at some of the classic uh, Chargers, and I'm thinking back to the chase scene from the movie Bullet with Steve McQueen. Yes. You know, and, and the Dukes of Hazard. you know, the General Lee. I know yep. that's politically incorrect to mention, but there was, there was the Charger <laughs> uh-huh. in its glory. Yep. Well, now, those Chargers were coupes. Originally, the Charger was a two-door. Uh, and when Dodge uh, resurrected the nameplate, uh, they applied it, interestingly enough, to this four-door sedan. However, there is a two-door version of it called the Challenger, and uh, that, too, is a name from the past. But they're both built on what's called the same platform. That's car industry jargon. It just means the underlying chassis. And they are both very American cars, not just in their layout, but also in their affordability. They're extremely different from the kinds of cars that are being foisted on us uh, de facto by all the government mandates and regulations that are homogenizing cars and making them indistinguishable from Japanese and European cars. Not that there's anything wrong with Japanese or European cars, but uh, as Napoleon would say, you know, vive la différence. You know, it was nice <laughs> when there was a difference and people could choose. All right, so let's, let's, let's cut right to the chase. What is it about mm-hmm. a big throbbing V8 that, uh, that just can't be replicated by a little turbocharged four-cylinder? Well, it's analogous to a Saturn V rocket versus, uh, you know, watching the space shuttle go up. And the space shuttle's okay. It's pretty neat, you know, but it's not like a Saturn V, which rips the sky with that, you know, 7 million or 8 million pounds of thrust that it generated. There's nothing uh, that can generate the sound and the easy, effortless power of a gigantic V8 engine. And that is something... Uh, that was also unique in history in that uh, Americans, average people, working guys, plumbers, electricians could afford a car like that and drive a car like that, where in the rest of the world, if you wanted a V8, you pretty much had to be a member of the Soviet nomenclature and drive a big Zill, which was a copy of a Packard uh, or uh, you know, a dear leader Lincoln. Those types of vehicles were reserved for uh, the muckety-mucks of the political apparat. And that's what's happening again. You know, The average person is being driven into a little tiny car with a little four-cylinder engine, uh, and only the elites are going to get to drive around in the big, heavy cars with the big engines. Now, you mentioned that uh, one of the big draws for the Charger is that there's a, there's a lot of extra stuff, like the automatic engine stop, mm-hmm. start. Uh, that yeah. You can get it if you want, but it's not, yes. it's not necessarily mandated. Yeah, the Charger's interesting because it, even though it's a 2020 model, uh, it's essentially a 2011 model. That was the last time the Charger was substantially updated, and yet it still sells really well. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that it sells really well is it does not come standard with a lot of these nannying and pushy and nudgy technologies that you'll find in almost every other new 2020 model, meaning a car that has just been redesigned. So it's a way to have a brand-new car uh, with a new car warranty and you know the plastic on the seats and the new car smell and all of that without some of the cloying and obnoxious and pushy technology that they're force-feeding to us in other cars. Now, should a person who picks up, say, a, a V6 version of the Charger, do they need to hang their heads in shame for not having a V8 in there? No, absolutely not. You know, the V6 is no slouch. It's the 300-horsepower engine, and it's also, in my opinion, it's a practical engine because it makes power the old-fashioned way with displacement rather than a turbo or any elaborate technology that 
might be great on paper and right now while the warranty is still valid, but do you really want to be the owner of that thing 10 years from now when it's got 120,000 miles on it and you're looking at a $3,000 bill for a new turbo? You'll never have that problem with the, uh, the V6. I actually uh, rented one uh, a few years ago, about four or five years ago when my daughter got married. Um, I ended up with a V6 charger. The guy at the rental agency just upgraded me, and I was like, okay, I'll I'll take it for a spin. The thing that surprised me, number one, as you mentioned, it had plenty of get-up-and-go. I did not feel like it was lacking for horsepower at all. The other thing that impressed me was for as heavy a car and as solid a ride as it is, it was surprisingly nimble. Is this why cops like it? Oh, yeah. Cops love it. That's actually I've always as ambivalent as I am toward what I style armed government workers. If if they like a, a particular car, that to me is a sound testament that the vehicle is probably a good one to pick for you or me. Uh, and they like it for just those reasons. It's it's a, a big, heavy, safe car that uh, is comfortable to be in for eight hours or more at a stretch. Uh, that has a huge trunk for plenty of things to put in it, and is also, again, as you say, very agile, a vehicle that can maneuver with the best of them. And by the way, you know, uh, people are very concerned these days about, uh, and I always say it this way, safety, to mock it a little bit. Uh, but this is, a, this is an inherently safe car that does not have to rely on all, this, uh, all these electronic gadgets to be safe. It's big, and big is an advantage when it comes to crashworthiness. Physics matters. Uh, and a big car is a safe car. It's why a, M- a Mercedes S-Class, for example, is a very safe car. But a Mercedes S-Class is a $100,000 car, and the Charger is a $28,000 car to start. Now, I don't know what the difference is between uh, you know the brake system that uh, my, my friend in the Highway Patrol has in his Charger and, and the, the Charger a person might buy off the showroom floor. But I was really impressed when my buddy was telling me, mm-hmm. he says, you know, what's great about these cars, they have wide shoulders, they, they, they can handle yep. corners well, they have plenty of power. Yep. But he says, you can stop this thing. He goes, I could go from 80 miles an hour to a dead stop in about two house lengths or two, the, the length of two yards in your neighborhood. And I'm like, that's impressive. Sure. Sure, and particularly if you go for uh, the RT, which has the V8, because you'll get even better brakes. Uh, everything else has been complemented uh, to, to go with that big engine. Uh, so, And that's, again, another reason why, why cops do like it. They have a police spec package, but you can get essentially the same package uh, in the car that you buy, uh, just without the Motorola radio. Nice. And, and without everybody driving slow around you as soon as they see you. Pretty much, though, even though that can be a benefit, too. If you get a, uh, you know, a, a dark black, a dark navy blue one or a black one, uh, people tend to get out of your way, so that's another perk. Okay, let's take it to the top end of the Charger spectrum. Uh, tell me about sure. the Charger Hellcat. Oh, yeah, well, it's essentially the same, uh, same thing as the Challenger Hellcat, which means that it's got that uh, supercharged uh, 6.2-liter Hemi uh, that makes 707 horsepower. You can get that in the sedan. Wow. And you can now get it with something called the wide-body package, which essentially gives it these really hairy-looking pontoon fender flares and massive 20-inch wheels and upgraded everything. You get super upgraded brakes, suspension, the whole works. And it's an incredibly formidable car, and it's a relatively affordable car given everything you get. Uh, it's under $70,000. Now, if that sounds high, you've got to realize that this is a car uh, that, is, uh, that will outperform exotics that cost twice that amount of money. And you can put more than two people in it. That's right. It's a big. It's still a nice, big, comfortable American sedan that that will comfortably take five people uh, for a hell ride. And uh, you know, if you happen to be a member of the mafia, you can store two bodies in the trunk as well. Nice. 
Now, are you going to have a chance to, to do some road testing on, on any of the Hellcat models anytime soon? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, uh, I'm on deck to, to get the Hellcat widebody uh, at some point this summer. So when that happens, you know I'm going to flash the bat signal to you and let you know that it's here. Yeah, I want to see some video, and I'll definitely be watching your website for, for your write-up. We're, we're up against the clock here, Eric. Let's tell everybody mm-hmm. about your website, where they can find you, and, and encourage them to go there. Oh, sure. It's, uh, it's www.epautos.com. Uh, pretty easy to find. You can just type my name, too, Eric Peters, into the website. And uh, we've got car reviews there. We've got topics, uh, political topics. We've got news topics, pretty much anything under the sun. And if anybody listening would like to ask me a question about politics or about cars or car buying, there's a little button that you can click. It just says Ask Eric, and it'll take you to a page where you can leave your question, and I will try to answer it as quickly as I possibly can. Eric, so great to talk with you. I look forward to visiting again next week. Thanks, Brian. Me also. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining us, whether it's the live broadcast or it's the podcast. You are in the right place. By the way, I want to welcome Justin Spears. Now joining me, Justin and I first crossed paths. I guess it would have been back at FeeCon last month in Atlanta. How are you today? I'm doing well, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Now, for for people who may not be familiar with you, I, I know I have referenced some of your articles before on my show. Uh, you are an educator. Uh, you're a person who's out there trying to improve the world in, in your own sphere of influence. How else would you describe yourself? And, and don't be modest. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, um, I am I am an educator, as you said. I'm a non-traditional teacher. So my, my background is in business. I have a bachelor's degree in marketing. I spent the first four years of my career working in sales. And after pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, cold calling, all that good stuff, I thought, what in the world am I doing? So I went to school to become a teacher. And during that uh, 10 years in the classroom, uh, I, I entered into the classroom because because I like helping people. And, and that's really why I got into education is, is I wanted to help people. And of course, I had kind of that bright eyed, bushy tailed view of education at that point in time. And as I've spent this last 10 years in the classroom, I've really come to see just how um, coercive compulsory education has become. And so I, I've really made it my um, passion to educate people on education, um, or as we say, schooling, not necessarily education, the American schooling system. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of reading and writing on that. I've been doing some writing with Fee. I've been doing some writing with the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, and, and that's really where I have put a lot of my, my energy in over the last couple of months. And, and the, the sources that you just mentioned here, I want my audience to understand, I consider these some of the, the powerhouse uh, foundational principle based sources that I like to go to when I'm looking for better understanding of an issue. I like to seek out the writers from the Tenth Amendment Center or from the Foundation for Economic Education because they, they don't get caught up in the whole red state, blue state, you know, tug of war. There's just there's a lot of factual principle based writing. And it always makes me think. And, Justin, you are you are right on top of your game. Now, I saw that you had posted on your blog, The Other Side, 
a really thought-provoking article about how united we should be. And I'm going to ask you to, to, first of all, tell us, why would you write an article about how united should we be? Yeah, so the idea behind this came from really, you know, I, I was talking with Suzanne Sherman the other day, and we were talking about the nationalization of everything how everything has become nationalized. Uh, we tend to, if you study American history and you look at early, early colonial American history and westward expansion, and that was a time of freedom and liberty when people were out on their own. Um, they, they, were, they weren't turning in toward the Potomac River and bowing down with their prayer mats and <laughs> saying, oh, mighty U.S. government, please give us a solution to this problem. You know, they were forced. They were rugged. They had to rely on themselves and their local communities. And and so, you know, society developed uh, throughout this way in, in this country where there was that individual ruggedness, right, and and a community that came together like-minded and, and, you know, really, though, diverse, right? You know, when you look at all of the different uh, immigration in the country from various different parts of Europe, and we celebrated that diversity through freedom. And so fast forward to today, where, as I was just mentioning, I feel like we oftentimes look to uh, Washington, D.C. for solutions to problems, whether they be public policy topics or just differences in culture, uh, whether that be you know race, gender, sexual orientation, income inequality, whatever that might be, uh, that, that really what we ought to be doing is celebrating the diversity that we have still in this country through freedom and liberty. Uh, and, and so that was kind of as I traveled over the summer, uh, I went to a couple of different places and, and I wanted to examine the culture and see how different is it uh, in other parts of the country. And I've, I've had the fortunate, uh, uh, the fortunes of being able to travel quite a bit uh, in the United States. And I always try to do that. I always try to look at, you know, what is the culture like and see the diversity and how things uh, happen in these different parts of, of our country. And, you know, just really kind of pull that out a little bit and, and let people see the differences that are there and that we should really celebrate that instead of looking for a forced uh, solution throughout the country. Well, and you point out one of the problems that I, that I think a lot of people have, and that is when, when we say the word diversity, it translates into uniformity in thought, in action, in speech, you know, uh, and those those are not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, that's right. You know, the same thing that we oftentimes hear um, applied to the idea of equality. Um, we want equality of outcome, not opportunity. And ultimately, I think what we should be celebrating is equality of, of uh, opportunity. That doesn't always mean that, you know, everything's going to come out the same way for everyone. And so, yeah, you know, diversity is one of those things that, you know, buzzword that gets used a lot today. Um, you know, when you look even throughout on the um, there was a map that I put up on, on the blog that I did, uh, where you can see just all of the various different cultural pockets in the country, uh, that there's diversity even within, you know, these these smaller local, whether they be, you know, municipalities, counties, towns, cities, whatever they might be. Uh, and so I think that's proof, right, that, that there can be differences amongst people, but that we will still get along with each other. We'll still, you know, voluntarily interact with one another. Uh, I think toward the end of the article, I, I made comments about, you know, look, I, 
the, the my Muslim coworker. I don't care that I have a Muslim coworker so long as they're not harming me. I don't care if there's a gay couple living in my neighborhood so long as they're not stealing my property, so on and so forth. Or as in libertarian world, we'd say as long as they're not violating the non-aggression principle. Right. Uh, you know, we can get along and and cooperate uh, without having somebody at even even at the local level of government, but specifically at the national level of government telling me uh, what I have to believe or how I have to act. And, and Justin, I think you, you dialed right in on one of the biggest problems that, that arises is when government becomes part of the equation. There have always been people with different beliefs or different values or different uh, worldviews. But when we allow government to step in and start mandating that everybody has to think this way or everybody has to toe this line, that's when conflict starts. It starts with that forced association. Yeah, and I tried to highlight that uh, in the blog with with the story of the the Colorado um, the baking case, right? Which has pretty much been kind of front and center of um, the the clash between religious liberties and civil liberties of uh, the the Colorado baker having to bake the, the cake for the the gay couple. And so I kind of highlight in in the blog piece, you know, th- this is the the uh, dichotomous nature of what a lot of these issues in our society bring about today, where you have two polar opposites pitted against each other, both claiming constitutional protection here. Someone's going to win, somebody's going to lose. And that's what happens when the government uh, gets involved. Now, if you kind of... um, Take a take take the matrix cable out from the back of your head and, and actually <laughs> think about this in, in a different perspective, and you say to yourself, "Okay, what if we just celebrate the, the the freedom and liberty of disassociation, which oftentimes doesn't get talked about, because so many people today think, well, no, clearly the government has to force either that baker to bake the cake, or they have to force religious liberty upon the gay couple and say he has the right to do that. Why not just let it happen organically? Uh, if that baker decides not to want to do business with gay couples, then the market will handle that, right? The market will will say they, that, oh, hey, look, that, that's not somebody that we want to do business with. And then he'll be forced to have to make uh, some kind of change organically through the market forces telling him, not through Washington, D.C., saying, if you're a baker, you have to bake for every single person in this country. Justin, give me a take on, on how, give me your take on how did we get to the point where a person can't peacefully disagree with someone, but has to be forced, you know, to to acquiesce and do what someone else is telling them. Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, personally, um, I really think, and I try to trace a lot of stuff back to, uh, and I could be wrong by this. Somebody out there listening may, may correct me on on this, but I always look at the New Deal as kind of a tipping point in American history. That, that I think, was really uh, not to say that there were obviously hardships before that, right? I mean, obviously, you, you had had other issues, um, you know, throughout the, the nation's history. Some people will point even to the Civil War. Uh, but but I, I like to use the New Deal as a, a point, especially in modern history, where we really started to view the power of the American government in terms of providing solutions to problems. So, you know, with FDR's, um, you know, programs and all of the different things that came along with that, uh, we really started to. And then you can fast forward to Johnson and, and the Great Society uh, and, and everything that, that came out with that, um, the war on poverty, the war on crime, all these different wars that we have today, we just have increasingly more and more as a country 
looked toward Washington, D.C. for solutions. Uh, and so I think that's kind of spilled over into to dialogue, right, to just everyday interactions with people. Now, all of a sudden, we can't think for ourselves. We don't have the ability to be able to uh, interact with one another freely. We have to look at the person with the label first, and then we have to go back and check the manual and say, okay, how am I supposed to feel about X person or Y person or Z person instead of just, again, you know, being more free thinking people. Justin, can you hang with me for one more segment? Yeah, sure. Okay, stay on the line. Justin Spears is with me. We're talking about how united should we be? We'll continue right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Justin Spears is my guest, and we are talking about uh, an article he just posted on his his blog, How United Should We Be? And and Justin, you, you wrote this after doing some, some pretty serious travel around the United States. Uh, the map that you include of the different cultures represented uh, throughout the U.S., there were, first of all, there were a lot more than I would have thought. I mean, I would have thought, well, you know, you got the South, you got the Nor'easters and whatnot, maybe the West— but there were no less than 33 different cultures represented. That, w- that was staggering to me. Yeah, and I think it, it really speaks volumes to, um, as, as I try to reference in the article, that you know we, we tend to think of these broad-based uh, areas of, of the country, right? The Upper Great Lakes, the Midwest, the South, as I refer to, uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, things of that nature. But even when you break that down even further, and, and I even argue, uh, I link to a study uh, that through Indiana University, uh, for those that are listening, not, I live in Indiana, uh, just west of, of Indianapolis, uh, I reference a, a uh, research piece that was done by Indiana University that highlights the various different regions of my state even, uh, which sees a lot of diversity when you go from what is known as the region, uh, which is very much more like Chicago, right? So we, we for those that are geographically challenged, uh, Gary, Indiana, uh, butts up with Lake Michigan and is basically a suburb of Chicago. That area up in the northern part of Indiana up through near Fort Wayne is very different than the southern part of Indiana, which is much more like Kentucky. It's the foothills of Indiana. You kind of start to get geographic changes in in terms of physical geography, uh, but also, again, a lot of cultural changes as well. So you can see a lot of these different pockets on this map. And, and again, you may agree or disagree. People who live within some of these areas may not agree with them wholeheartedly. And I guess that's kind of one of those things that can be subject to, uh, you know, various different opinions and things of that nature. But I do think it sheds light on the fact that, you know, even within the states that we, we have broken up into, uh, there can be, you know, different cultural changes. So were there any areas, uh, any of these uh, these cultural regions that surprised you more than others or that stood out to you more than others? Yeah, I think the the one that really kind of uh, hit home to me, especially on the travels that I just had down down to the south. Um, I, I've been to Atlanta a number of different times. I've got some family that live down there. We've traveled through there on the way down to Florida before. Uh, and I had been to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is up 
closer to Virginia. But this most recent trip that I took last week, I went to a place called Sunset Beach, North Carolina, which is right on the border with uh, South Carolina. It's it's just north of uh, Myrtle Beach. And so when we drove, uh, we took a route through um, – Central and southeastern Ohio through West Virginia, Virginia, and then down through uh, North Carolina. And as I was traveling through the Appalachian Mountains, I I started thinking about Appalachian culture. It's something that I had read about in J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, I've been down through Kentucky a lot and Ohio. I lived over in Cincinnati for a couple years. And so I I started thinking about even the the diversity within that area. And and again, if you reference the map that I have put up, you can see just the wide diversity here. There's four or five different uh, groups from Ohio down toward Tennessee over toward the seaboard that uh, identify different cultures uh, within within the Appalachian Mountains. And so, yeah, there were a couple of times where we were, for example, driving through West Virginia and I would go through Charleston uh, and, and then I would notice Morgantown, which is where West Virginia is, is up in the northern part. And that identifies more with Pennsylvania. Uh, and so even within, again, that particular state of, of West Virginia, you have two very clear delineations and cultural uh, norms and, and values and differences that that may be there. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's, you know, again, kind of what really spurred me on to think about this a little bit more uh, in terms of thinking about different cultures, again, even at the most local of levels. Now, one of the things you point out here in, in your blog entry is you talk about, first of all, we should be recognizing these differences and not in the sense that, hey, you know, we can't have these. But the solution that you have is it's okay to recognize the differences, whether it's cultural, whether it's public policy. What is your solution, though, from that point on? What's the next thing we need to do? Yeah, nothing. (laughs) I love it. Absolutely nothing. Right. Yeah. You know, th- that's the thing is um, I, I, there was a story and I haven't had a chance to, to read through this yet. So I may be j- jumping the gun here on this a little bit, but I, I'm pretty sure I, I kind of understood what was happening. Uh, there, there was some incident down, I think, in Georgia here recently, like a Chick-fil-A. Did you see this story? Um, I'm not sure that I saw that. Nope. Okay. If I understand the article that I read right, there was an incident at a Chick-fil-A where apparently a woman claimed uh, that she was uh, mocked or ridiculed uh, either for her race or her look or or something along those lines. And of course, you know, she drew the local media in and was yelling all this stuff. And anyway, I think it came out to be that it was it was basically a hoax. Right. It wasn't she was looking for her 15 minutes of fame. Uh, and, And so, you know, when you look at these stories that we see today, and this is something that I, I try to write about uh, in, as a thread through the article here, is the narratives that the media and the government in particular try to push on these stories of differences that we have. Instead of celebrating them, uh, we, we instead get you know conformity to a particular um, you know value system or worldview or political ideology or whatever the, the issue might be. And so, again, I think that creates in people's minds, uh, you know, the the kind of the hyper, you know, sensitivity 
uh, to, you know, oh my gosh, there is X person living in my neighborhood or in my county. What am I supposed to think or believe? And as I said, you know, in my opinion, what you do is nothing, right? You embrace them. You get to learn about uh, why they feel the way they feel or what they believe, you know, why they believe what they believe and things of that nature. And and I think, uh, Brian, what, what's most important here, and you and I were, were chatting about this uh, prior to coming on, is – uh, you know, as as a Christian, uh, I, I practice a, a Christian lifestyle. Uh, you know, I am told that free will, right, is what should really drive uh, my my beliefs, right? And and the use of force and coercion to get people to believe things is is not the way to go about doing it, right? We should be living our lives as an example to others as to how they should live their lives, and and as long as I am doing that. Uh, that, you know, and I'm not harming other people. That's really what I should be aspiring to. And really, you know, I believe what most people should be aspiring to. Let me play devil's advocate just for a moment here. Okay, Justin. But, but if you take that approach, Justin, why there will be states that have widely different standards and, and, and different things that they'll accept. Some states may accept gambling or abortion or gay marriage or, or, or dancing or, or alcohol or, or pot. Where, where would that lead us? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what this country should look like. You know, um, I I think when you look at the idea of the 50 states, if you take the approach of looking at the 50 states as 50 different countries, right, there's all of these different options. It's like a smorgasbord of of availability. Uh, And I know this always brings up people that that talk about, uh, you know, well, I can't move. Right. I'm anchored where I'm anchored or whatever. Like, Like I said, there can be these differences even within a particular state, right? So if you're living in a particular county, um, you know, when you look at that coveted uh, county map that they always show during the electoral college uh, uh, periods of time of of voting, um, you can see, you know, all the the urban centers vote Democrat and a lot of the suburban rural counties vote Republican. And and you can kind of see see that there. You know, that's kind of the same idea here is there's going to be a lot of diversity even within your state, right? So if there's a state that wants to legalize abortion, legalize um, gay marriage, and wants to outlaw every type of weapon there is, fine. Uh, let that state exist, and people that want to live in that environment can go live there. Meanwhile, there could be a neighboring state that wants to outlaw every vice under the sun and return back to you know dry periods and you know uh, the, the 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 late 1800s. Uh, that then that's fine. Let them do that. But but, you know, I think both places can can coexist. Uh, And and even if you, again, had that within a particular state, I think that would be doable. Uh, It just requires people to say, as long as somebody is not harming me and violating the non-aggression policy, that we should be able to celebrate and and build a culture of diversity, uh, but allow people to be able to freely choose how to live their life and just leave other people alone. I love it. Celebrate diversity, not just the diversity of getting to all think exactly alike, which is unfortunately what diversity has kind of come to mean in a lot of corners. Justin, where can people find your, your writings and, and follow your work? 
Yeah, so I've created a website, uh, edfailure.com. That's all one word, ed, E-D, failure.com. That is where I have a lot of our uh, information on our articles, our appearances, previous podcasts that we've been on and done. Uh, So all that is over there. Uh, Writingsthroughfee.org. If you just search my name, you'll find uh, I have three articles that have been published so far. I'm working on a fourth one right now. Uh, And over at the 10th Amendment Center, um, you can find my writings over there. I have a couple of pieces about how to teach civics. Justin, thank you so um, much. Yeah, you bet. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.